Thanks for coming, everybody, this evening. Good to see um, an almost full um, lecture hall. We're excited to have to have moved to a different location um, other than our home at the Phoebe Hearst Museum of Anthropology. So, um, so welcome to the museum that's not at the museum. Um, we do hope that, you, um, that you're able to make it uh, to see our exhibit at the Hearst Museum if you have not already. Um, this talk is, um, is a part of our programming series related to our new exhibit that just opened a few weeks ago um, called Pleasure, Poison, Prescription, Prayer, The, Mi the Worlds of Mind-Altering Substances. And so um, if you don't know a little bit about, about the Hearst Museum already, um, the Hearst Museum cares for a collection of about 3.8 million objects from all around the world, spanning 2 million years of history. And, um, and in our most recent exhibit, um, we, um, we feature 10 substances um, from around the world and, um, and seek to show the varying meanings and migrations of those um, substances and the objects related to those substances and sort of highlight the gray areas in between um, these ideas of pleasure, poison, prescription, and prayer when it comes to mind-altering substances. Um, so ayahuasca is actually a substance that we, um, because of space constraints, collection constraints, um, a substance that we were not able to feature in that exhibit. And so uh, we're really excited, since that's such a huge topic, um, that we're able to open, up the, um, open things up so that we can uh, cover additional substances through programs like this. So we're really grateful that Joe is here for, um, for this talk um, tonight to um, talk about ayahuasca. Um, so um, I want to, first of all, thank our, my colleagues at the Hearst Museum, Jessica Moreno and Katie Fleming, for um, arranging this evening. So um, this was uh, quite a feat to, to have a whole shift in venue. Um, and I'm going to introduce um, Dr. Joe Tafur. Um, Joe is a Colombian-American family physician, originally from Phoenix, Arizona, and after completing his family medicine training at UCLA, um, Dr. Tafur spent two years in academic research at the UCSD Department of Psychiatry in a lab focused on mind-body medicine. After his research fellowship over a period of six years, he lived and worked in the Peruvian Amazon at the traditional healing center Niue Rao Centro Espiritual. Uh, there, he worked closely with Master Shipibo Shaman, Ricardo Amaringo, and trained in ayahuasca shamanism. In his new book, The Fellowship of the River, A Medical Doctor's Exploration into Traditional Amazonian Plant Medicine, and through a in that book, through a series of stories, Dr. Tafur shared his unique experience and integrative medical theories. And uh, before I turn it over to Joe, I also want to recognize the close connection between this talk and, um, and a longtime friend of the museum who passed away last year, Dr. Dr. Michael Harner. Um, so we're, we're grateful for his, uh, his, ongoing, his, his and his family's ongoing support. Um, he passed away last year, um, and he was the founder of the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, and um, Dr. Harner studied here at Berkeley, um, conduct, conducted ethnographic fieldwork in Ecuador and Peru, and served in several roles at the Hearst Museum, or what was then the Lowy Museum. And um, as the foundation states, Dr. Harner brought shamanism to contemporary life in the West after extensive field and cross-cultural investigation, experimentation, and personal practice. He originated 
researched and developed core shamanism, a system designed for Westerners to apply shamanism and shamanic healing in their daily lives. So thank you for being here tonight. And, um, and since this event was sold out, um, we don't have all of our seats filled, as you can see, but since the event was sold out and we know there was great interest, um, you might like to know and you might like to pass on to your friends that, uh, that a recording of the talk tonight is going to be um, posted as a podcast on Berkeley Talks. So, uh, so the, word, uh, the good word of Dr. Tafur can be spread. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Joe. Thank you very much. Hello, hello everybody, good evening. Thank you for having me here. Thank you to the Hearst Museum and everybody, the staff, for including me in this. Can you hear me all right, a little bit? Um, yeah, so I'm here and uh, happened to be here because there was the Integrative Mental Health Conference in San Francisco, downtown. We were just there the last few days and Michael Pollan spoke and Gabor Mate and, and Andrew Weil and they were just all about how <clears throat> psychedelic medicine is really entering like integrative medicine it was kind of announced at this by dr andrew Weil that it's like it's here now it's part of it so it's kind of come full circle um this this thing so this is my talk and then we're gonna have some time for questions uh i just want to get into this material so i have this book so i'm going to be presenting some of the ideas of the book and it's a little bit of a medical perspective but it's the point of it is more to to blend um the scientific kind of view or the Western view and, and more of a traditional shamanic perspective. So it's called Ayahuasca Shamanism, Illuminating the Interface Between Biology and Emotion and Spirituality. So it's, this is the exhibit that's here at the Museum, Pleasure, Poison, Prescription, Prayer, The Worlds of Mind-Altering Substances. And here is a little uh, huichol, you know, peyote art from Mexico. That's part of the, uh, part of the exhibit. So this is me. He introduced me. I'm a family medicine doctor from the UC system. You know, didn't spend that much time at Berkeley, but but I like Berkeley. And uh, I went to UCSD for medical school and UCLA for family medicine, and went back to UCSD to do some some mind body medicine research that you know, was discussed. And then I spent time from 2007. I got involved with uh, traditional Shipibo shamanism in Peru and the Amazon. So ayahuasca shamanism, but also traditional Amazonian plant medicine, the other plants that are used in addition to ayahuasca to the present. And from 2011-2017, I we founded a healing center. So there's some people I met, there's a friend of mine from Iquitos here, but I ran a healing center um, from the, that period of time where people come from all over the world to, to receive ayahuasca and other plant medicines for healing. And I went in that process, I went through traditional apprenticeship to, to learn to become my ayahuasquero under my teacher and to run ceremony. And so that's kind of like my perspective. And since then, I have a few things going on. Uh, but it includes modernspirit.org is an organization I have that we're promoting some research and education. So this is a quote from the website of the Hearst Museum of this exhibit. They say, around the globe, colonial powers have exerted their influence by casting judgment on the mind-altering plants used by indigenous peoples. How do these methods of control influence how these psychotropics would migrate around the world, be used, and be viewed in global context today? So we're now in this era, you know, where peyote, which is still a scarce resource, at least from North America, is, you know, spread to some degree outside of the native community. Mushrooms, you know, have exploded across the world from the Mazatec shamans in, in southern Mexico, and now there's psilocybin research that is going through clinical trials 
at the FDA level and is a making major um, progress and is probably going to lead to psilocybin becoming a, a prescribed medication in a you know, psychotherapeutic context within a couple of years, they're anticipating. On top of movements to legalize psilocybin uh, here and elsewhere uh, for religious use or just for just decriminalizing it, period, uh, just for being mushrooms. And then there's, yeah, you know, I guess there's mushrooms, so why make it against the law? Uh, and on that note, there's ayahuasca, right? So ayahuasca spreading out of the Amazon and, you know, definitely into the Bay Area heavily. It's, as far as I know, this has got to be one of the headquarters, you know, outside of, outside of the Amazon. And uh, so it's interesting, you know, and then now there, here it is. It's an exhibit, you know, from the Anthropology Museum when it was considered this very, like, foreign, probably exotic thing, National Geographic style. And now it's come all the way through, and we had it at the conference, you know. I was a speaker at an integrated mental health conference in San Francisco two days ago, or two or three. So it's, it's coming around. This is a photo from Nuerao, Centro Espiritual, from the center, as far as what is going on with this whole international context of ayahuasca. Well, this is a center where... We are receiving, this is a group from 2013 of naturopathic students. So I live in Phoenix, and we had a relationship with the naturopathic school there. So we were bringing groups down of, of medical students, psychologists, psychotherapists, and naturopaths to go through traditional uh, Shipibo healing, you know, under Ricardo's guidance. Ricardo's there in the back with the black jacket, and then Wheelit is another Shipibo shaman, and then there's me with our dog, Happy, and, and a few other people. Svita's in the back, too, a big part of what we do. So traditional Shipibo healing, at least this, you know, traditional Amazonian plant medicine, and just like traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine or, you know, allopathic medicine, there's many different fields and departments. So there are some people in traditional Amazonian plant medicine or herbalists focused on medicinal use of plants. Um, some people who are body workers. Some people who are focused on, you know, midwifery, that kind of thing. And then there are shamans. There's ayahuasqueros who are focused on spiritual healing. Uh, for a wide variety of things, but have more of a spiritual focus and energetic focus. And that's uh, Ricardo Maringo uh, at Niuerao. That's a Niuerao tree that he's sitting there with. That's what the center is named for. And he's my teacher. He's a, he's a Shipibo Ayahuasquero, Curandero. They call him Onanya in their culture. And, you know, then some people call them shamans. They're not so excited about that because they have their own words for, for their, what they do as medicine people. Um... He uh, is now the sole owner of Niuerao, Centro Espiritual, like just for people that are so worried about cultural appropriation and stuff like that. Well, we set up the center, we ran the center, and now he bought me out. And he's the owner of one of the larger ayahuasca healing centers, and it's run by indigenous Amazonians. Yeah, that's a real thing. Oh, thank you. Um, and so then ayahuasca ceremony, you know, is part of what goes on at the center. Like I said, there's a lot of other traditional plants used, but Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, anywhere out, there's ayahuasca ceremony. And it's run there, and we heal people through that uh, approach and try to help people that way. And this is the like, first time I saw somebody cooking ayahuasca. He's wearing a Phoenix Suns hat, which was weird. <laughs> so I always include that. This is a little aerial view of Niuerao, the center in Peru, where you from the drone, where you could see that it's on the edge of a national forest, that is like oceanic and it's you know one side you have towns villages and then the city the other side is like an ocean of amazon so there's still a lot of amazon out there you know i'm always 
trying to encourage people that are into ayahuasca and into these topics to think about the Amazon to try to help the Amazon, you know, in your consciousness or find ways to support the forest and the people of the forest because, you know, thanks to them, we have access to this medicine that's helping a lot of people and a lot of other medicines. So that's outside of Iquitos, Peru. So I have this book, The Fellowship of the River. Only a few copies left because there was a kind of a run on the books at the Integrated Mental Health Conference, which is really cool. That all these doctors bought it and psychologists and people like that. Um, but it's available on Amazon if you want it, if you can't get it here. And it's also audiobook and Kindle. So that's the book. And it's Fellowship of the River. And it's about, um, what I say here, acknowledging the emotional and spiritual dimensions of illness. So what are we getting? You know, when shamanism comes back around, when the Westerners, uh, you know, I'm a doctor, uh, I went, you know, trained, uh, worked at Kaiser in California and worked for Health, you know, Cigna in Phoenix. And so when the people coming through those systems are not getting the kind of healing they're looking for, and then they go all the way to the Amazon, to Peru, to, to go with natives in the forest, you know, what are they looking for? And what is it that they're finding? What's missing in our system? You know, this advanced, allopathic, scientific, materialist, you know, maybe a slightly overly capitalist system, what's missing? Well, it seemed that what the people found, what I was tracking, was emotional and spiritual kind of considerations. That the, uh, the doctor wasn't quite ready to go there in, in many cases. So that's kind of the art of healing. That's what we call the art of healing in my uh, idea. And so this is a little clip from a, or a photo from Netflix. This movie called Sky Ladder, which was about this Chinese uh, fireworks expert. He's like the avatar of Chinese fireworks and they made a Netflix you know so it's, I mean that's a big deal right and uh, he did the Beijing Olympics like so this is you know that's that's like a divine he's gonna be in the scrolls um, I would imagine and his so his dream was to make this sky ladder to create this ladder that was going to the sky and hanging from a balloon and fighting the authorities and trying to pull off his sky ladder and he was so dedicated to it and and he said you know art is very important it addresses, you know, art addresses the invisible world. So he says it indicates and addresses, it got cut off, indicates and addresses the invisible world. That's the function of art. That there is an invisible realm, you know, not so easy to measure, that we experience. You know, we experience it subjectively, we experience it so many ways. You know, we're human beings, we're alive. We feel a lot of things. We notice a lot of things, strange things sometimes, mysterious things. And so art... It's one of the places where we express this freely, you know, what it feels like to be alive. And he says it's very important because it indicates and addresses the invisible world. And then he uses the example of feng shui. He says feng shui is an example of something that indicates and addresses the invisible world. So this is shipibo kenne. The kenne is what they call the designs, the shipibo designs. So these are designs that are taken from the visionary realm. Very many people, foreigners from all over the world, you know, let the anthropologists study it. Many people from Nazi peoples, anywhere, Russia, Japan, they see these designs in their ayahuasca, in the ceremony. It's commonly experienced. They report that. They share that. And within the culture, they've kind of refined uh, certain motifs that are drawn from the visions that are believed to be visual representations of plant medicine energies, healing energies that you can see under the influence of the ayahuasca and, and many people see these things. So they're just like, you know, indicating and addressing the invisible world. There's people see this stuff, and then they put it on their clothes. 
and they put it on their skirts and they put it on they paint their house and it's everywhere you know that this is very real this invisible realm that they experience in ayahuasca they bring it out into the open so um here's kene painted on a human face so where how these things interact and interface with the the anatomy, you know, the mysterious anatomy of the human face and how it develops from a single cell, you know, into this form and this shape. And then to see in the ayahuasca vision, sometimes somebody, they say they're, they're like a healer, they're connected to the plants. People see the designs on their face. It's common, it happens. So then they paint this to show everybody what they saw. So feng shui indicates and addresses the invisible worlds. In Chinese mythology, feng shui is a system of spiritual energies, both good and evil, present in the natural features of landscapes. That's Wikipedia. What I understand from what I read on Wikipedia, uh, it says feng shui means wind and water. I think that's, I don't know which one's which, but feng shui is wind and water. An ancient Chinese system of designing buildings and space arrangement according to special rules about the flow of energy aimed at achieving harmony with the environment. So what are these invisible forces that shape the landscape? That make the river flow this way? and make the wind blow this way, there's forces, there's things, you know, we can study them across the scales that they need to be studied, but there's something there. There's something there that's, that's part of that process. It's an invisible force, you know, and their, their presence in the landscape is proof of that invisible force and the beauty, you know, of so-called creation, and this is how it looks. It's from that. And so, similarly, uh, when, you, when people try to apply feng shui in a space, in a physical space, it's not necessarily driven by aesthetics. The idea is you're trying to be in alignment with these invisible forces. So there's a harmony, an energetic harmony that people are reaching for that people then claim in their subjective sensibility. They sense that. Oh, I like the way this feels here in this space. You know? And they say, oh, well, it's because we, you know, we've studied how to arrange things in a certain way that it brings that sense of harmony. So that's an example of, of using art to indicate and address invisible forces. So we're, I think this is a physics building. I don't know, I was looking around. I think it's physics. So electromagnetic field, you know, that's one simple example of an invisible force in the scientific world. That's a huge part of our lives. And, you know, that you don't necessarily see it. We don't see the 5G or the 4G that's flowing all around us, like full of movies and information and everything, you know. Uh, everything, I guess. <laughs> my presentation. So these are invisible forces that we don't necessarily see, right? We, but we, we do interact with them and we learn how to use them and draw from them. And there's ways to indicate, indicate and address them like this with the magnet and the, the iron filings. So heart math, which is out, uh, was related to some stuff at Institute of Noetic Sciences, I think, and Petaluma, and they're doing this research on, on the electromagnetic field of the heart, for example that the electromagnetic field of the heart, which is a very measurable phenomenon, it is the basis of the EKG, which we use as doctors to study you know, what's going on with somebody's heart and, and how healthy their heart is, etc. But that this field that's generated, that's measured you know, on the surface of the body, goes out you know, a few feet away. And this idea that they're, the same body that produces it perhaps is, is sensitive to, to the same phenomenon, and, and that's something. So art is very important. And it addresses the invisible world, which we can feel and experience, but not always measure. And so this is kene on a human face on a pot, you know, this multidimensional situation. And then you could grow ayahuasca in there, or you could drink it from there, and, uh, and there it is. 
So curanderismo, okay, like spiritual healing techniques, like this kind of Spanish term for the spiritual healing, also addresses invisible worlds. Okay, that's the purpose of that kind of uh, people going to a shaman, to a healer, to a curandero, to an ayahuasquero. You're asking to go to somebody that's going to help you address some invisible elements of what's going on. So invisible causes, invisible sources of aid aimed at achieving harmony. So scientists struggle with the mysteries of life, sometimes discouraging the acknowledgement of our feelings, our subjective experience. You know, here we are in this physics building, the quantum physicists and the mathematicians, you know, supposedly so rational, so logical, so materialistic or something like that. According to their uh, extrapolations, there's like at least, I don't know, I think from a quantum physics I hear there's at least 10 dimensions or maybe there's 12 or 15 or 20 that the mathematics points to this, that the models all point to this. So there's, there's a lot of mystery indicated by our measurement currently. And so, but sometimes that mystery, we kind of, in the scientific world, I don't know, somehow it gets denied. Uh, and we discourage sometimes the acknowledgement of our feelings. You know, as a doctor, that's a big issue when I was going through medical school. You know, how do I feel about what's going on? Oh, don't worry about that, you know. Just let's get the labs, let's get the x-rays. So our subjective experience is sometimes denied. So we limit the discussion to our mental, whatever that is. So mental is a huge metaphysical realm that somehow arbitrarily within the society and the culture is described as if that's normal, mental. We don't even know where our thoughts come from. We don't even know where consciousness exists. But somehow that's arbitrarily not considered mysterious. You know, I can talk about mental, but I can't, you know, I can talk about, um, you know, maybe visualizing for sports you know, like the, my runway or whatever, going down the ski slopes, some visualized and guided imagery, you know, but if I think about some intentionality or a praying or reaching, you know, the way, the same kind of function, my imagination is a complete mystery. Where is it that I'm drawing these ideas from? What is it? What portal am I opening myself up to? But still, you know, mental and physical experiences. Traditional healers are artists. They do not distinguish themselves from the mysteries of life. So I don't have to pretend that, I don't have to see how it fits into a box, you know, if I feel something, if my intuition tells me something that I can later investigate with somebody and verify or not verify and see where that leads me, you know, I can do that as a living human person and as a healer. I can bring that to, to my work. This is art from El Mack. He's a graffiti artist from, or just, yeah, he does, he does murals from Phoenix, from Arizona, from Mesa. And I just think it's interesting, his art, the way it looks to me, reminds me of things I, I see in ayahuasca. You know, the, the, where does he get those ideas from? You know, where is that from? So, so psychotherapists, I presented this stuff at a psychotherapy conference. They're also artists. So they're addressing the invisible influence of, for example, emotional trauma and our belief systems. You know, the way our belief systems influence our health, whether it's the placebo effect and just what we believe or how we see, we don't hope that we believe we can get better or what do we think is wrong with us. So those things, those invisible influences, emotional trauma, our belief systems, the way they influence our mental, you know, this measurable thing, the mental, because I guess we have psychometric measures, although they're very subjective, they're considered to be, you know, fact. So mental and physical health are influenced by these invisible things, emotional trauma, which is only now getting a lot more attention the way emotional trauma affects our health long term. Uh, 
and then our belief systems, you know, the way we see ourselves in the world. So where do these energies, these invisible energies, where do they touch the flesh, the way the kene is here on this lady's face, or the way the acupuncture meridians are drawn in Chinese medicine, you know, crossing over the body? And so then that brings us to, to the treatment. So the book is, is partially about my journey, but it's also about watching people go through treatment down there as a doctor and seeing people go into the system where they're going to allow this invisible discussion, they're going to allow this artistry to happen, and they're going to also allow uh, the person's experience objectively of emotional trauma and the way they believe and the way they see and what they feel that's going to come to the forefront of their treatment. And so when people come down there uh, to Niwerao, they go through this traditional people healing, and it involves a vegetalista diet, so that's part of this particular tradition. Not all ayahuasca people are into that. But these guys are, and you have this very strict diet that's part of you preparing yourself to receive the medicine and make the most of the medicine and no salt and no sugar and et cetera, et cetera. Okay, all these restrictions. Then these people are given plantas maestras, master plants. So maestra in Spanish is more like teacher. It means master, but more teacher. The way you call the teacher of the school is maestra. You know, it's like master, yes, but it means teacher. So plants that have been shown or then explored and experimented with that they can teach you things about yourself, about your life, according to the tradition. So people are guided to diet with these master plants. Then they're treated in ayahuasca ceremony. And within the ayahuasca ceremony, they, they have the option of consuming ayahuasca along with the shamans or the healers. And then they're going to receive ikaro. And the traditional people, there's many different forms of shamanism around ayahuasca and different ways of performing ikaro and singing these mystical healing songs. But in this particular setting, and you went out, then yeah, they get a, a personal healing song. And Ikaro, which is considered to be the art of the shaman, the strength of the shaman's medicine. And that's where the energetic healing and cleaning happens in the song. That's where this invisible work is happening in the healing, in addition to supporting somebody through an ayahuasca experience. And then through this wild, you know, exotic, anthropological, whatever, museum quality, uh, treatment technique, modality, these people, many, many, I've watched hundreds of people go through the center as a doctor, they achieved a lot of uh, mental and physical healing, okay, what we would describe as mental, psychological healing, and even physical healing, physical symptoms, through spiritual techniques. So here's an example of the cases that I present in the book, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a hot topic right now. Um, so post-traumatic stress disorder was considered kind of a subset of anxiety disorder, so from big trauma, whether that's war or sexual trauma or other forms of trauma, there's an unexplainable chronic cough case. A lady that had this cough, dry cough, won't go away, went to all the doctors, went to the CAT scan, the pulmonary function testing, the pulmonologist, not getting better. She got better with this approach. Crohn's disease, so inflammatory bowel disease, people, there's Crohn's disease, there's ulcerative colitis, there's irritable bowel syndrome, all these kind of what are considered to some degree psychosomatic um, gastrointestinal problems, digestive problems. This guy had a miraculous healing with uh, this kind of medicine. Psoriasis, inflammatory skin problems, eczema, psoriasis that are known to get worse when people are stressed out and have genetic factors, but also there's maybe other factors. Anxiety, okay, big focus of, of research with psychedelics here, psilocybin for end-of-life anxiety in cancer patients is getting a lot of uh, airtime right now. They're having a lot of success. Depression, okay, this big epidemic all over the country, depression. Addiction, huge problem, not really getting better with the advances in kind of medical research, you know, the, that approach 
that's not looking at this emotional side, that's not looking at this spiritual side, is not having a lot of success with addiction. But down there, they are reporting more success with addiction, with psychedelic medicines and, and traditional plant medicine. Migraine headache, I present a case of a migraine headache that had a major improvement. You know, as a doctor, medical doctor, these are all the problems that we don't, we don't even think they can get better. You know, that's just like chronic disease management is what you're looking at there. I'm a family medicine doctor, so every one of those people, PTSD is going to go to the psychiatrist, you know, basically for the rest of their life. The Klarnikoff that's not getting better, they're going to hang out with a pulmonologist, hopefully things improve. Crohn's disease, they're going to go to the GI doctor for the rest of their life. Um, psoriasis is a germ problem, you know, anxiety, depression, addiction, kind of psych problems, migraine headache, neurology. And so that's, what, that's the deal. And so that's what I had been exposed to. And then yet I saw these people have this huge improvement through this treatment I just described in the last slide. Like they all had the same treatment, you know, different plants, but largely the same basic treatment. And so why? So I said, if they're all getting better from the same kind of treatment, then there must be some kind of common physiology, you know, between these problems. That's how it always works, you know, for we still have a material body and... If it's all working, then they must have something in common. And what is in common in these cases, and I'm not saying it's always the case for these diagnoses, but in these cases, it was emotional trauma. These people all went through a very deep emotional healing. That deep emotional healing was facilitated by a spiritual context. They learned to forgive. They learned to love themselves. They learned to find compassion. They learned to re-experience gratitude. And those were, and there was a lot of energetic cleansing and purging and catharsis, you know, that the ayahuasca also facilitated that led to, like, rapid gains. But there was no doubt, like, a very mystical quality to, to how they improved. So treating these seemingly invisible elements of our experience, our emotional experience, our spiritual lives, our sense of meaning and purpose, you know, someone who just feels lost in life, doesn't feel like they have a place in life, they don't even belong here, this existential crisis... You know, they're ashamed to even be born. And so how do you help somebody like that? You know, this way there's belief systems. So where do these emotional and spiritual influences touch the flesh? Where does it touch the flesh? Back to that question again. So we have the getting on the face and the Chinese, you know, meridians, the chi. And so where can we find the related physiology and the biochemistry? So if I'm saying everybody here who is all emotional healing... And so there must be some common emotional physiology. There must be some common emotional biology that's impacted by what they've been through. And we should be able to find it, actually. We have enough knowledge now. And so I say, well, that's the emotional body, which I'm going to describe, and then the epigenetics, these two new kind of areas of research. So how do we, you know, like I tell people all the time, and this is, you know, where, where uh, how do we bridge? People are like, don't you go crazy? How can you drink ayahuasca and work on people in ayahuasca and then you're a doctor, you know? Doesn't that make you crazy? How can it all make sense? You know, that's because it's, it's always the Westerner, you know, that has a really hard time <laughs> with like when things, when their worldview starts getting, you know, cracked. Like, oh my God, was that real? Was that real? Is this real? Was that real? <laughs> the, the, the indigenous people I work, they don't have that so much. They're just like, oh wow, that happened. That was wild. That was, but they're not, they're like, it's gone now. But you know, whoa. But they're not so worried about the implications for like how they see the world, how they think about the world, you know. But there's this lockup, and it, it is hard. And I am a doctor, and I, I mean, I can understand to a degree. I'm a Western person. But when I'm trying to figure out how to bring this together, you know, traditional healing, song, and ayahuasca, and plants, 
and this kind of healing of migraine headaches or psoriasis, it's the patient is the bridge. Okay, that's how you explain it. That's what it is. And that's the difference when, when a doctor goes or a psychotherapist goes to work alongside shamans. It's different because we're comparing notes. You know, I'm not seeing them like, you know, some of this real distant, um, whatever, this earlier stuff, the, the anthropology or the meeting of the cultures, you know, part of it was just trying to, are these the same species as us? You know, that's kind of, there's a lot of that attitude. Well, how could they, how they think, how could I, that couldn't affect me, you know. But sure, they believe in all this stuff. That can't affect you if you don't believe in that. If you're not from there, you know, if that's not your blood, then it's just not going to touch you. But then people are flocking to the Amazon from every part of the world, from every race in the world, to receive, in what I have, the Shipibo healing song, and readily, you know, guess what? They're all human beings, you know? They're all human beings. And they can take pills, just like you take pills, and you can take ayahuasca the way they take ayahuasca. You know, carefully, very carefully. There's a lot of risks that I'm not trying to promote ayahuasca. I'm simply saying that it's, it's there. And so people, you can watch a person. And you can hear, what did the shaman say about them? You can hear, what did the, uh, what did the patient say about their experience? You know, what did the doctor say about their experience? And then you use those three perspectives to try to understand what happened. Because that's what really happened. It's not about trying to fit the diagnosis or what, well, that didn't, nothing happened. It's like, no, talk to the person. You know, if it's your family, you're going to ask them. You know, I'm going to ask my brother whether I'm a doctor or I'm not a doctor. I'm going to ask him, what happened? You know, it's very important and it's very real to me and to him. So the patient is the bridge. And there's this thing. There's just as we talk about mind-body, there's this mind-body that's kind of hitting the mainstream. Mind-body connection, mind-body medicine. We talk about meditation and the way stress affects illness and how by stress making people sick. That's a big area of mind-body research or, or the way meditation and mindfulness and all these things are, are helping people. There's another pair, you know, that other systems talk about, like Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine or maybe like uh, traditional native cultures. They talk about the motion paired to energy. The emotional body paired to the energy. The emotional body paired to the spirit. Okay? But that's the spirit. That's the mystery is there. So just as we're paired mind-body, there's a pair here. That through your emotional being and through what you sense and feel is how you become aware of the mystery. Of things that are, you know, don't add up. That are beyond the scope of your mind. So when somebody has a very strong mystical experience that they feel is like very, very meaningful. When you think, oh, that, that was really meaningful, what just happened, you feel it. The reason it makes a mark is because you feel it in your whole being. And so there's that part of you that feels and senses the world, and it feels what's inside of you. And so I'm calling that the emotional body. You know, that's what some people call it. It's the medium through which you feel this stuff. So the emotional body, the medium through which we experience emotion and feeling. And so that's a, this is just a Finnish study, I think, where they asked people subjectively, where do you feel these different emotions in your body? And they just mapped what everyone said. And they got this like crossover based on what people said. They had this you know, physical map, like, oh, they feel the shame in this regions of their body. You know, they're blushing. Their pride is like up top in their heart and their mind, you know. And so there's these different things that the people have a common experience of, of emotions. And so then this mind-body research that I was a part of, 
where they're studying all the stress influence on, on disease and psychological influence on disease, they have described a network called the psycho... First, it was, first they were talking about psychosomatic medicine. They used to say, oh, psychosomatic. And then they started studying this as psychoneuroimmunology, PNI, meaning the way your brain and your psychology affects your nervous system, affects your uh, immune system, PNI. And then there's PNEI, where your hormones are also affected. And there's a network that responds together. And I'm saying this is the emotional body. Why do I say this is the emotional body? Because this network, you can show that emotional trauma disturbs this network, and you can show that deep emotional healing alleviates the function of this network. And that's a, that's a, a phenomenon that we've measured. So there's a limbic brain. The emotional brain is kind of at the core of this. The limbic brain and the way it's linked into the autonomic nervous system, the immune system, the autonomic nervous system that controls our, the expression of our emotions, you know, the way it feels to, to feel emotion is the, when, you, when your stomach rumbles, when you're anxious, you know, when your breathing speeds up, when you're a little agitated or excited, when you sweat, when you're uncomfortable, when you cry, you know, when you throw up on ayahuasca, you go to the bathroom on ayahuasca, you shake, that's your autonomic nervous system. And then the endocrine system, you know, the hormones, that, you know, the main ones that we could kind of focus on. There are like stress hormones and epin, you know, adrenaline and things like that, cortisol, that you hear a lot about, cortisol, the stress hormone, that's part of the system. There's this HPA axis you may have heard of, I don't know, it's pretty medical, but the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, this axis which is called the stress response system in the body, the fight or flight response is controlled by this, and this is what affects adrenaline levels and cortisol levels, and it's a big focus of research in mind-body medicine the way stress affects illness, the way stress affects high blood pressure, right? Turns out high blood pressure is highly psychosomatic. Like, don't talk about it enough, but it's a fact that they've measured, and this whole P&I field is like, all the data is there, you know? That's a real thing. Um, Depression, the way it affects your immune function, the way your white blood cells and all that, you know, the way they're affected by being depressed. That's part of that research. Emotional trauma, affecting the stress response system. PTSD, like war you know, trauma, affecting somebody's stress response system. And their HPA axis is thrown off. And they're hyper you know, vigilant. And they're super agitated. And they're quick to anger. And they can't rest. And their blood pressure goes up. And their heart has problems. And their inflammatory system is not working right. This is just some papers. I'm not getting into the details, but just to give you an example of research examining the crux of autonomic dysfunction and PTSD, endocrine aspects of PTSD and implications for diagnosis and treatment, pro-inflammatory milieu, this increased inflammatory milieu, you know, the inflammation disturbed by PTSD. This is a, a big thing in psychedelic medicine right now is MAPS, who's here in the, in the Bay Area, in Santa Cruz, and does a lot of work here. The Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies has been running these MDMA trials. So they opened up this, you know, the MDMA research and they think by 2021 it's going to be prescribed. It's going to be rescheduled or something. Why? Because the results of the study are so impactful that you just can't hold it back from people. You know? And so they have this MDMA, assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And so they've done the first studies that were just showing that you know, this is safe, this is effective. How long does it last? They're already at that level, following people one year, two years, saying this is real. They're, they're having lasting results. It's not just, oh, they got high and... You know, nothing really happened. 
And then you have going after the more conservative elements of the society, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, for military veterans, firefighters, police officers, you know, trying to really reach out and help the traumatized elements of the society, not, not just for people that are psychonauts. So PTSD in the emotional body. So I'm saying this is the disease of the emotional body, of this network. So I'm just having a little diagram, you know, psycho, neuro, endocrine, immunologic system, this whole network is affected by emotional trauma, for example, war trauma. You have psychological anxiety, nightmares, neurology, you got the autonomic, stress response, dysfunction I talked about, endocrinologic stuff, cortisol, adrenaline levels I talked about, and this inflammatory disturbance in the immune system. So in the book, I talk about uh, this case, Russ, is a family friend of mine, with Vietnam. he's a Vietnam vet, that was, you know, in Vietnam in the late 60s. So this is like 40 years later, he's still suffering for this problem. He's going to the VA and he's going to group therapy with guys coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq that are in their 20s. And they see him in his 60s and they think, am I going to be coming to this group for the rest of my life? Like, yes, is the, is the, if they want to. Because their symptoms, you know, they're not really being addressed effectively by, by the system, you know. But now this new hope of MDMA is psychotherapy is like, whoa, you know, these people, they don't even qualify for PTSD, uh, 60% of them from the last data they reported. So Russ went through a treatment in ayahuasca healing, and I talk about that in the book, and, and his thing, you know, Ricardo the shaman is like, what we got to do, we got to heal him, it's energy, we're going to approach it energetically. So there's this, there's this mind-body, and there's this you know, physical side of the emotional experience of psychoneural endocrine neurological network, and there's that's the physical, and then I'm going to get into a little bit about how that plays into this allostatic load, like measurements of cortisol levels and different autonomic disturbance, and the way that's related to epigenetics. But then on the other side, this emotional body is also linked to this energy part of ourselves, that energy body. And so the Shipibos are saying, and a lot of other people are saying, you know, we can just go after, just like this, it's this interesting link, because if you have a lot of emotional blockage and disturbance, it can really block, like, your intuition, for example. When people come, and they're really blocked, as we say blocked, you know, the Shipibos says, they come drink ayahuasca, they don't see anything, it doesn't open up, maybe it's just physical, and then they start going through a cleaning process, and this happens, like, you could watch this happen every week then it opens. Now all of a sudden, they didn't believe in anything, and now all of a sudden they're saying, oh my God, you know, was that God? And so this idea of like, this nihilism of the society is in part due to this like, heavily unaddressed trauma blockage in the emotional being. And as you start opening that up, when you start treating people's emotional trauma, their hearts open more their minds open more. That's very common. I mean, that's just, it's just something you can observe. And so what's funny is that's like a portal, and the portal goes both ways. And so you can approach somebody energetically to get at this, you know, through the energy. And that's, that's healing song. That's Ikaro in our tradition, and they use ayahuasca to help people, open people to that. Because it's hard to believe in that if you've never seen that before. But the ayahuasca makes it easier sometimes for people. And so Russ had an experience where, you know, Ricardo's singing to him and all these 
dark black leeches are getting ripped and pulled out of his body and all this stuff and he's throwing up and he's, all this stuff's coming out. You know, this big release, this big purge that leads to him having like wild experiences with his mom that passed away. That he had like some unresolved stuff with. And his mom forgiving him and asking him, and he was able to ask forgiveness, you know, and have this like deep, heartfelt shift that ended up resulting in with his daughters, you know, that he wasn't able to be there with his daughters he wanted to be, you know, coming back with from Vietnam. And then he has this whole forgiveness process. And he comes back, and his blood pressure is down. He doesn't need so much medication. And his diabetes is getting better, you know, and it's easier for him. And he's not so reactive, and he's not so jumpy, and he doesn't take psych drugs anymore, you know, from that. So that's an example. So what about the biochemistry? What about, I said, okay, emotional body, and I said biochemistry. What about the biochemistry? Where are these energies in the body? And so in the book I talk about, I was, I was singing to somebody. So then I'm training, I talk about my training. And I'm singing to this woman that has this migraine headache history. And she's struggling, and you know, you can get the whole story there. And Ayahuasca shows me this image that I had my friend paint of this, like, her, what I call her chromatin. So the DNA is wrapped up in these proteins, packaged up to make the chromosomes. So it's, it's these histone proteins. So the DNA is wrapped up in these things. And I saw this here, histones floating and pink glowing. He didn't do the pink, but we're still working on it. And I saw, <laughs> I saw this little black dragon swimming through, like, the nooks and crannies of her, you know, genetic material. And Ayahuasca said to me, she goes, Joe, her problem isn't in her genes, it's on her genes. Because everyone's like, oh, well, you got migraines and your family has migraines and that's it. You know, it's in the blueprint. She's like, no, it's on her genes. And so that was real interesting for me. And then, you know, so then I'm going through that process. And I started exploring epigenetics and learning more about epigenetics. So epigenetics, this is DNA strand, like the chromosome, and you start unraveling the chromosome, and you see the DNA is wrapped around these little histone proteins. And this is a big focus of modern medicine now, a big breakthrough epigenetics, showing how these little tags that get put down, these epigenetic factors get put down along with the strand or in the proteins, affect the way the genes are expressed. So the same genes are expressed very differently because of the way the epigenetics is programmed. That's what I talk about it. Like there's a hardware... And then there's a software. And so Bruce Lipton, who has his book about epigenetics, uh, I think it's Biology of Belief, and he's saying, you know, it's like there's a contractor, there's a blueprint, the, the, the DNA code is a blueprint, but then there's a contractor that reads that blueprint. And that contractor is influenced by the environment, constantly responding to the environment. And so there's a huge versatility of the biological system available from the epigenetics. The simplest example is just your different blood cells, your body cells. You got, I got an eyeball, and I got a hand, and I got a red blood cell. They're all with the same DNA exactly. Same DNA exactly. It's just programmed differently to be differentiated. So that epigenetic programming, you can undo that programming and make stem cells. You know, they can harvest a thing, unprogram it, from, and make a whole sheep from that. So there's this thing. There's a lot of software in there. And it turns out this software and the way that the epigenetics can be affected is turning out to be a really big deal in terms of cancer, in terms of autoimmune disease, in terms of uh, diabetes and mental health, depression, anxiety, addiction. So just migraine, you know, I didn't even know that 
I didn't think about how what she learned in the process was that her migraine headaches were heavily related to all her father's rage when she was a little girl and all the screaming and throwing stuff off the table, you know, that she lived through. And the way it just overwhelmed her senses and kind of fried her circuits and crossed, crossed them. So now it's like a smell or the light or whatever brings on the headache. Or in her case, hormonal shifts around her menstruation push her over the edge into really bad migraines. And I didn't really hear about childhood trauma or stress leading to migraines as a doctor. And I find these papers. Migraine, maladaptive brain response to stress. Childhood maltreatment in a migraine patient, you know, from 2016. Epigenetic mechanisms in migraine, a promising avenue. Epigenetics in migraine, complex mitochondrial interaction. So all this, this, you know, epigenetic research around migraines that I didn't know about. So Lisa had a major healing down there that ultimately, like, the key to getting past where she had to go, and it was a difficult journey for her, was with some severe headaches through the process, was about letting go of that anger and rage, you know, that she had with her father and learning how to forgive him and learning how to accept him at a deep spiritual level. And she had a major resolution of her migraine headaches, just a reality. She just used to be debilitated for three days, can't do anything, has to take this kind of medication. Then the next two years, takes barely any medication, has almost no symptoms. From that, you know, that was her experience. So Ricardo's always talking about, you know, limpiando energias in Spanish is cleaning energies. We've got to clean their energies. That's what they need, energy cleaning. And she, people always say, soa, soa. That's clean in the song. Clean, clean. That was song, soa, 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 soa. So cleaning the energies of what are we cleaning? The shaman's like, oh, we've got to clean their trauma. We've got to clean their strong, these strong emotional experiences they've had from their infancy, from in utero, from adolescence, from their environment, from their relationships, from their ancestors and their families. So then we see these energies. Where do these energies live? And I'm saying, that I'm starting to think maybe it's the epigenetics. That's where they get imprinted in. That's where they get programmed in. And that's what we're cleaning. And so we should see a healing at the epigenetic level also. So this just papers early life trauma, depression, and the glutocorticoid receptor gene, the cortisol receptor gene. The way the cortisol receptor gene is affected epigenetically from childhood trauma and how that's connected to depression later in life. The signature of maternal rearing, and so this is just monkey studies where they're showing how when you pull them away from their mom and they go through that neglect, you can see imprints in the epigenetics in parts of the system, the PNI network, in their limbic brain, in their white blood cells. It stays in there. There's ancestral trauma now starting to come forward from the epigenetic research that it's carried down. They're studying Holocaust survivors and their children and showing that it looks like it's some epigenetic imprinting going on. Why are these kids whose parents were in the Holocaust or in concentration camps have more uh, prevalence of anxiety? Is it, oh, it's because their parents you know, were traumatized and so they don't know how to raise the kids. And it's like, that's part of it probably, the nature versus nurture, but then it turns out there's epigenetic imprints that they can link back to that time. And then they do these mouse studies where they shock these mice every time they smell a certain smell until the mouse freaks out just from the smell. They're now conditioned to freak out to the smell and then there are multiple generations after that have that sensitivity to the smell. It's part of how instinct is imprinted into the system. So that mouse and their you know, progeny are adapted to a new ecosystem. When they move in somewhere new, then they have to start tracking what's, what's repulsive, some predator, some smell, what's good, some good-smelling little berries. And some of that stuff tracks into the system. And it's emotional memory is a way to think about it. 
and that can get passed on. So that's the, that's the adaptive response, but there is such a thing as maladaptive stress response, things that are imprinted that you're trying to protect your children to carry this information. However, it was a concentration camp you know, in Eastern Europe. Not that useful to them. So you've got to heal that. You've got to clear that out of the epigenome. We know that the epigenome responds to antidepressants, interestingly enough, that that's one of the functions of antidepressants. They, they, they alter the epigenome. Parental love, or the lack thereof, all this neglect, all the stuff they study, they show that love actually turns out that epigenetics seems sensitive to love. Is it a loved monkey? Or whatever you want to call it, but I think we know what love is. You know, I think it's okay to throw that out there. Like loving the children. Like that that's a real thing. That has epigenetic implications. And not loving them also does. Meditation has been shown to alter the epigenetics. Meditation, advanced meditators can alter the epigenetics within a few hours is what the, the study I saw. So altered states of consciousness affect. So it's a very sensitive element of our biochemistry, it seems. Sensitive to very emotional exchange, sensitive to uh, meditation, altered states of consciousness, and as it turns out, psychotherapy. That psychotherapy has been shown to alter epigenetics as well. So there's no material exchange, just this relationship with this person and working through issues. And I'm saying probably emotional and energetic healing techniques also affect epigenetics. Ikaros, for example, is a theory. So this is just you know more data. HPA axis-related genes response to psychological therapy, so psychotherapy and epigenetics, psychotherapy and genetic neuroscience. It is concluded that although the evidence is still limited at this stage, extant research does indeed suggest that psychotherapy may be associated with epigenetic changes. And so Ricardo, when he's talking about cleaning these kind of energies of these certain experiences in life, each one of these is a major like epigenetic focus. Epigenetic imprinting in, in utero is a big study area. Childhood, infancy, a lot of emotional epigenetics, a lot of programming goes on in those windows, which is very sensitive and adapting, adapting to try to be prepared for life. But then there's still later trauma that can imprint, you know, in adolescence or let's say war and an adult. Um, the environment's influence, you know, relationships influence. This is Ricardo's always saying, oh, we got oh, the relationship with our mom. We've got to sing to him about that. And then ancestral stuff, which we just touched on. So psychedelic therapy, I say, is healing hearts and souls by healing the emotional body and the epigenome. That's, that's where it touches together. And so we have our Modern Spirit Epigenetics Project. So Modern Spirit from you know, my visions and my idea and talking to a lot of people and doing research for the book, we realized, wow, we should start looking at epigenetics in these, uh, these psychedelic trials. So MAPS has agreed to allow us to collect saliva and check for epigenetic changes for the people that are going through this PTSD healing. So that started. We're raising money. We have we started the study. We have some money. We could use more money. Maybe some of you have money. Um, <laughs> that's at USC. So it's MAPS and it's USC under Dr. Rael Khan. And so that's what I, I want to talk to you about. Then I want to open it up to questions. And so let's have some questions. Yeah. 